This evening, we continue our series of lessons on the Old Testament prophetical book of Isaiah. I hope you'll be turning there with me. We have arrived at a set of chapters that will begin in chapter 25 this evening. Throughout the previous lessons, we have looked at four different ones involving some beautiful teachings concerning this Old Testament book. I thought that it would be appropriate to make an initial statement that you'll appreciate near the top of that slide. Isn't it remarkable? The book of Isaiah was written over 800 years before Jesus was born in that, uh, in that city of Bethlehem of Judea. Over eight centuries. And yet, the God of heaven saw fit to reveal through the prophet Isaiah not only a number of attributes and features of his life and of his work, but of his kingdom and of that which he would make available to the human family. It's stirring and compelling to the mind to appreciate that this was so significant to the God of heaven that He saw fit to let it be known ahead of time through the words of the prophet. Tonight, in fact, we shall cast a rather strong spotlight on the nature of the Christ. I would again remind you, almost 850 years would pass. No doubt those individuals that were alive and well at the time Isaiah first penned this they could only dream about the coming of the Messiah. They could only give thought to how great the circumstances would be. And yet, you and I now live this side of His coming, and we're able to appreciate the blessings as great as they are. Tonight, why don't we give some thought then to what a few of those will be. And we'll start our journey again in chapter number 25. As you come to this next slide... I shall do as I've attempted to do for the previous lessons, and that is to say, to select certain elements in the chapters before us this evening, and we'll then devote some time and attention to the presentation of those elements. As we come to Isaiah 25, may I point out that in the chapters prior to this, as we closed our lesson last Sunday evening, we appreciated that God had much to say about the nature of the nations and the fact that they were under the judgment of heaven, because of their errors and their sins and the choices that they had made. As we come to this chapter, we really are somewhat past that. But you'll notice, as we're about to see, there are some strong and stirring statements that are made. In fact, would you note just the opening verse or two of chapter 25 before we launch into the primary part a few verses later. O Lord, thou art my God, I will exalt thee, I will praise thy name. For thou hast done wonderful things, thy counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. As Isaiah made that proclamation, aren't you rather amazed? Here in the midst of a people that had gone wrong in some ways, and they had devoted their attention in ways that were not correct and right, Isaiah asserted, Thou art my God. I hope you and I will always be steadfast and unmovable always abounding in the work of the Lord. Even if others in our circle of acquaintances, even if others that you and I know falter and stumble and are not committed the way that the God of heaven would wish, may we never fall to their level. May we never adopt their practice and do that which they would encourage. Though Isaiah was surrounded by those less spiritual than he, he affirmed, I will exalt thee, I will praise thy name. Thou hast done wonderful things, and may we note with some interest the last phrase of the verse. Thy counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. 
don't you love the fact that God has always been faithful? And He always will be faithful. He will never, in fact, backtrack on His promise. He will never fail to carry out that which is true and right in His sight. May I say, Isaiah's reminder here is such a compelling thing, isn't it? But could I now direct your attention to what shall occur just a little bit further in the chapter because this is so stirring and in many ways so compelling. Allow me to start reading in verse 6 and just listen and see if some of these words sound familiar. And in this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all people a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of wines on the lees well refined. And he will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death in victory. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces and the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth. For the Lord has spoken it. I have really not much doubt that those words sound in many ways so familiar. You'll notice on the slide a few things probably have already leaped to the forefront of your consideration. I just read, for example, in verse 8, just to highlight some of the words again. May I begin at the opening part of that verse where it says, He will swallow up death and victory. We have encountered a passage in which there is a rather abundant and clear teaching that at some point death will be no more. Death will be overcome. This thing you and I recognize and call death will in fact be swallowed up. The verse goes on to say that this is going to correspond to a time when the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces. By now you've already thought and recognized that this is quoted in the New Testament. I've already given away on the slide some of the places in which we may well encounter this. And so would you be, in fact, considering with me 1 Corinthians 15. In that beautiful resurrection chapter of the Bible, the Apostle Paul revealed and made abundantly plain and known the grandeur of the grand day of resurrection. That time when, in fact, the Lord Jesus is going to descend, and we're told in verse 51 that even those who are alive at that time will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. You see, they're going to put on immortality. They're going to put on that kind of presentation suitable to eternity. And so it is, beginning in verse 52, and continuing for a number of verses thereafter, the Apostle Paul provides us with a beautiful and rather scintillating description. He points out that on this occasion, mortality will give way to immortality. Corruption has to put on incorruption. And we understand fully well that he's about to develop that thought like this. Because on that occasion when mortality puts on immortality, and when corruption puts on incorruption, we now notice Paul quotes this verse, practically verbatim. Death shall be swallowed up in victory. And so isn't it true that although Isaiah spoke so long before the coming of the New Testament era, Paul quoted it. And he, in fact, set before your mind and mine the great hope that's ours in Christ. There's coming a day when death will be no more. There's coming a day when, in fact, death will be swallowed up in victory. But did you notice that is it all? 
For just as surely as Paul highlighted that, remember how 1 Corinthians 15 closes? O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Now you and I know it appears as if the grave's the victory. We're all headed there if the Lord delays His coming. But Paul helps us see that the grave is not the victor. The victor are those who love the Lord and those who have obeyed Him at all costs. And those who've left this life in the Lord, to borrow the wording of Revelation 14, 13. Because indeed for us, death is swallowed up in victory and we shall never die again. For we aren't subject to the second death. The book of Revelation teaches us that. That's only reserved for the disobedient, for the unfaithful, for those not prepared to meet the Lord in judgment. They're the recipients of the second death, not you and me. Isn't it fair to say the Christian is that person who is born twice but just dies once? That's us. Now, you and I recognize the well that the world is only born once but dies twice. And what a sad predicament to be in. Isn't it remarkable then that just as surely as Isaiah said these matters, look at the rest of the verse. The Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces. That again appears in the New Testament. This time, we'll turn to Revelation. You and I remember in Revelation 21.4, when after all the characteristics of the devil were gone, after the nature of his being cast into the lake of fire had happened, all that was left were the faithful with the Lord. And it was said in Revelation 21.4 that of them, God will wipe away all the tears from their eyes. Because there will be no more sorrow, there will be no more crying, there will be no more pain, there will be no more death. The former things are passed away. I know you and I surely look forward to the reality of that moment. To look forward to the fulfillment and its grand excursion of Isaiah 25 verses 8 and 9. We look forward indeed to the, that occasion when death is swallowed up in victory. When finally all that we've labored for has come to reality and we see the Savior that died for us and we hear Him say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. Enter thou into the joys of thy Lord. Luke 19, beginning in verse 10. Maybe in that light we'll recognize that any tears shed that day will be tears of joy, tears of excitement and tears of celebration, not of sadness, not of disappointment and surely not of despair. Aren't you somewhat thrilled to reflect on the wording of Isaiah 25, 8? That's only the first lesson that we shall encounter tonight. Why don't we close that slide then and note this. As God revealed these matters to Isaiah, doesn't it whet our appetite for what else about the Messiah? For isn't it true that this is only going to be a real blessing because of the coming of the Messiah? What about lesson number two this evening? It takes us a little bit further in our journey to Isaiah 28. Would you please turn a couple of chapters forward with me as we give some thought to a rather sad saga that befell the people of Israel and it's detailed for our consideration in Isaiah 28. Although the opening six verses of that chapter are very illuminating in many ways, and we may have lessons a little bit later that ties that into some other texts in the book, we shall come tonight to verse 7. Would you listen as we give thought to Isaiah chapter 28, 
verses 7 and 8. It says, They also have erred through wine. Now you might go ahead and pause. Who is being identified as those who have made error in the sight of God? The verse goes on to say this, And through strong drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through strong, through strong drink, and they are swallowed up of wine. Isn't it remarkable to consider the fact that those you would have expected to be the teachers in Israel, those you might have thought that would be counted on in order to share forth the unsearchable truth of the, of the God of heaven, the priest and the prophet are the ones that God through Isaiah identified as being out of the way. Those that have erred. Those that have made an, not only a lapse in judgment, but they've chosen to live this way. At that point, what we're going to do now is come to verse number 9. These very people whom Isaiah has identified now have a reply. If God were to address you and me and perhaps challenge us in some way, how would we reply? Would we in earnestness and honesty say, God, I sinned and I'm sorry. Would you please forgive me and help me to be strong enough not to do this again? Let's see how they replied. Whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breasts? For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to the people. To whom he said, This is the rest wherewith you may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. But the word of the Lord was unto them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, and line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Might I invite you to notice the opening phrase of verse 14 will then read like this, Wherefore hear the word of the Lord. Are you getting a rather troubling feeling about their reply? Here a group of people, they had been identified, the prophet and the priest, as insufficient in their duties. They had erred. They had been guilty of not doing that which was the bidding of the Lord. And rather than being humble and confessing their mistake and pleading with God for forgiveness, did you know how they replied in verse 9? Who do you think we are? Isaiah, who do you think you're talking to? We're the priests. Let us tell you a thing or two. We're the prophet. Why don't you be quiet and listen to what we have to say? Do you get the feeling of a note of arrogance and a complete unwillingness to learn what God through Isaiah had to say? You might at this point notice some of the other references then that God shared with them. Did you note how often He said precept upon precept, line upon line? I wonder what that meant. That means this, God has rules and regulations and the priests and prophets didn't want to hear it. They wanted, you see, to do that which they found more preferable and pleasing and that which was to their suitability. But did you know in verse number 13, the word of the Lord wasn't changed just because they didn't want to hear it. And just because they were unexcited by it, the precept was still upon precept. The precept was still upon precept and the line was still upon line. 
God's Word hadn't changed in the slightest. Isn't it true in that connection in that, in, in that light? Maybe it's fair to note one of the comments there on that slide. God's Word was rather understandable. You notice they understood and had every right to anticipate what ought to have been known and done. You and I today have no excuse for that either. God's Word's understandable. I realize there are occasions those that claim that you need some special miraculous working of the Spirit to understand it, but that's just a lie. That is not consistent with biblical truth. The Spirit has done His job, and He has revealed the Word in clear terms and tones. Ephesians 3, 4 says, "...when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ." Wasn't even Habakkuk under the impression in Habakkuk 2, verse 2? That interesting phraseology when it says, "...let him that readeth run." God's Word was so plain that they were to leap into action in response to what it contained. Today, God's Word is still understandable to us. Isn't it so that it's thus a tragedy that here were those in Israel who were of position to say, Isaiah, you don't have anything to say to us. Let us tell you the way it is. Is it any wonder then, to continue in verse 14, Wherefore hear the word of the Lord, ye scornful men, that rule this people which is in Jerusalem. God has equipped these men to be the leaders over Israel there in that day and time, and they were derelict in their duties. They had failed majestically. And you may note in the next verse, it reaches a bit of a zenith. We have made a covenant with death, and with hell are we at agreement. What do you think about God telling them that? You people have made a covenant with hell. You people have made a covenant with death. Now, you'll notice that kind of thing is the consequence when one fails to obey the God of heaven. As you and I close that slide, aren't we reminded those stirring words of the New Testament that come as a challenge to each of us? For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. And there becomes as, as such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even to those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. The wording of Hebrews 5, beginning in verse 12. Maybe at this point, as you and I think of the sadness of that day and time, and these who are in these positions, doesn't it bring us to Jeremiah 5.31, where Jeremiah, also in lamentation, would say, The priests and the prophets, they bear rule by their means, and my people love to have it so. You see, the prophets and priests weren't the only ones at fault. The people were also feeling exactly the same way. Let's come to a happier note. Let's stay in the same chapter, however. But why don't we ask about the coming Christ, also found in Isaiah 28. In the midst of this interesting chapter, you may notice we pause in verse number 15, but the lesson text that Brother Dennis read earlier is verse number 16. Allow me to reread that. And why don't we place that with a position of some comments related to it. Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion 
For a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. In the midst of this description of a people that were not as God would have had them to be, we find that God makes a remarkable promise. He begins with the word behold. In essence, a confirmation, a statement of exclamation. I, he said, lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone. You may take note of who is going to lay the stone. God said he would. This isn't men's business. This isn't the confirmation of the thought of me and God said, I'm going to do this. And so on that slide, you may pause for a few of these comments as we develop that in a bit more thoroughness. We each understand that though corruption was easily seen in Israel, and it surely was seen in the surrounding nations as we noted last Sunday night, God here has a message of hope, a message of endurance, a message that His will is to be accomplished. I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone. Might we take note, he mentioned Zion. We know that's that hill in Jerusalem. It's that place, of course, where we've often noted biblical references. And here God identifies the fact it's at this place where the foundation shall be laid. Did you know he called it a foundation? That's what you build solidly on. That's what forms a proper base upon which a structure can be constructed. I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone. And he goes on to say it's a tried stone, and furthermore, a precious one at that. One more time, I suppose at this point, we're ready to note, do we recognize it? It's quoted in the, in the New Testament, isn't it? Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. As we listen to the way Peter refers to this, we shall be not only impressed, but rather notably motiv motivated. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter, in his inspired way, points out the following. You may notice, beginning in verse number 5, that Peter has these things to say. Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. We may pause there even before we continue. The reference already had been to a stone laid, but did you notice the pronoun is, not, is now changed? It's not an it. It's he. He is precious, verse 7. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. We pause there long enough then to note this. Here in the midst of Isaiah 28 was a statement again over 800 years before Jesus was to be born. I'm going to lay in Zion a chief cornerstone. And take note, Jesus wasn't born in Zion. He wasn't born in Jerusalem. He was born in Bethlehem. This is a reference to His death. He died at Jerusalem. 
He gave His life there on the cross. And in so doing, you'll notice, He became the foundation upon which any productive eternal life shall now be built. It was to be a recognized preciousness, the elect foundation. No wonder then in the New Testament when Peter quoted this, he then made reference to all of us as Christians. Although Jesus is the chief cornerstone, we all today are able to serve as priests in the tabernacle of God. Because after all, that's exactly how Peter described it. We are a holy priesthood. We are a royal nation. We are those dedicated in obedience to the Lord. The fascinating truth in that, again, was something that Peter quoted out of Isaiah 28. Aren't you and I still impressed how he could look down the stream of time that many centuries and foresee in beautiful ways that which Jesus would bring to fruition? As you and I close that slide, maybe it's a one final reminder of what then will naturally follow in the next verse. Judgment also will I lay to the line, and righteousness to the plummet. And the hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies, and the water shall overflow the hiding place. That chief cornerstone is thus going to be the judge. It will be a rather amazing scene when every single being that's ever lived is going to stand before the presence of Him, the one who gave His life. And you and I today in this era are such that our word will, His word will be opened and we shall be judged in accordance to it. It will be a rather amazing scene. It'll be a moment that'll never be forgotten. The coming Christ is highlighted in Isaiah 28. May I suggest to you, though, we have one last lesson for the time of our study tonight. It will, in fact, be a part that comes out of chapter 28, but perhaps more thoroughly seen in chapter 29. Why don't we come to it under the heading of empty dreams? I believe this presentation is a rather memorable one, and that's why I entitled it the same way the inspired writer did, Empty Dreams. Would you look with me and read as I read Isaiah 29, verses 7 and 8, and listen to how empty dreams have a part of this description. And the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, even all that fight against her and her munition, and that distress her, shall be as a dream of a night vision. Now we may pause a moment and ask, who is Ariel? That's surely an unusual Bible name. And I know in our modern day we have cartoons with people named Ariel in it. This is not a discussion of a cartoon, is it? If you look back up to the opening statement in the chapter, we are given the identification of Ariel. Woe to Ariel, verse 1 tells us. To Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Add ye year to year, let them kill sacrifices, yet I will distress Ariel. And there shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be unto me as Ariel. It's the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is referred to here in this interesting way of Ariel. You'll notice that God directly says, again, that things are going to be distressful for her because of her disobedience, because of her failures. But as you now come to verses 7 and 8, look at the way this presentation now captures our attention. Verse number 8, It shall be even as when a hungry man dreameth, and behold, he eateth, but he awaketh, and his soul is empty. Or as when a thirsty man dreameth, and behold, he drinketh, but he awaketh, and behold, he is faint. 
and his soul hath appetite, so shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. Have you ever had a dream? Maybe you went to bed hungry during the course of the night. You dreamed that you were eating. Did you wake up satisfied? Or maybe you went to bed thirsty. Maybe you had a dream during the course of the night that you had some refreshing water. Did you wake up with quenched thirst? We all know the answer to that. A dream doesn't make it so. A dream does not satisfy that which the body was in need of. And yet here, God describes empty dreams. As He made those statements in verses 7 and 8, look at the implication of them that occur later in the chapter. As you and I come to verse number 13, we notice one more time that emptiness is highlighted. It isn't merely a dream, however, this time. It's very real. Verse 13 says, Wherefore the Lord saith, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth... And with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me. And their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. Therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder. For the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. Talk about emptiness. We've encountered the third time that probably something sounded very familiar being quoted directly out of Isaiah. Where do we hear that in the New Testament? Those words that occurred in verse number 13. We recognize them, don't we? Hold your finger here and turn to Matthew chapter 15 and listen to the lips of Jesus as He made a description that will sound terribly familiar. In Matthew 15, I'll begin reading in verse number 7. It is at that place that Jesus says, Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you. Notice the Lord refers us to Isaiah, the very place we just noted. This people draweth nigh unto me with their lips, and honoreth me with their lips. But their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. You see, there's another place of emptiness. That occasion, that time when what God has said is abandoned and set aside for what men have preferred and what men have taught and what men have asserted. And although when we found that Isaiah passage, we noticed it was in the midst of this woeful description of Ariel and what would befall that city. Notice what befell it was. God's Word had told them what needed to be done and how it needed to be carried out. But supposedly wise men said something different. Supposedly, men of prudence said something different. And so, something different was done. God says, I'll tell you how that's going to work out. It's going to work out like this. Woe unto them that take that which I've said and set it aside for what men have taught. And didn't Jesus, in fact, quote that when He said, When those men teach for doctrines the commandments of men, what a woeful position. It makes the worship vain. It makes service unacceptable to God. I hope tonight we've seen yet another instance in which all over the pages of the book of Isaiah, we note about the coming of Jesus, we note about His teaching, and we note about the doctrine that is so often referenced to Him. Surely on that slide, then we might well close it like this. 
the wisdom of men is going to perish. Paul told us that in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 20. The wisdom of men, though prudent it may appear, it shall not last if it counteracts the teaching of God. You and I must be strong and faithful, ever appreciative of that closing verse of 1 Corinthians 15. Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. As you and I come to that point in the lesson tonight, we thus have basically closed chapter 29 in our study. So many chapters yet to go, but I hope in them we will continue to find the message of the Messiah, the hope spoken of Him in later New Testament books, and the truth that He set before each of us today. The book of Isaiah is certainly a thrilling Old Testament book of prophecy. No wonder it's called the Messianic prophetical book. Maybe one last thing on that slide would be a very brief summary of some of that which we've seen this evening. As perhaps an element of fortitude to help us through this week, we find in Isaiah and reiterated in the New Testament about the victory we have in Jesus, about a place and a time when God will wipe away all tears for those that are His children, about that time wherein we appreciate that the overwhelming victory will not be that of death, but it'll be of Christ over death for the last enemy to be destroyed, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 24, is that of death. And so, are you connected to that hope tonight? Are you living each day under the banner of connected to that truth that Jesus taught in Matthew 15? If you are, then may you continue to live that way and never veer from it. If though things are not well with your soul tonight, maybe you become guilty of at least a principle some of that which afflicted those people. You've turned your attention to the teachings of men. You've turned your thinking to that which perhaps notable people have said rather than what the Bible has. If that's your error, recognize the fact God's willing to forgive you and anxious to do it. But you've got to make the decision in order for Him to do that. If tonight, as a wayward child of God, you would love to come back to your first love, we would enjoy celebrating with you as the Lord welcomes you home. Isn't it true that the New Testament thankfully reminds us what needs to be done? You've got to repent of those sins and confess them. But upon so doing, we'll be honored to pray on your behalf. If you, as a person who's never become a Christian, maybe you too want the joy of knowing that place of victory spoken of in Isaiah 28, verses 9 and 10. You know that hope can be yours. You need to believe in the Lord, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. And if you'll do that, the Lord will add you to His church, and you'll be able to leave this structure tonight knowing that all is well with you. If tonight we could be of some assistance in one of these ways, we'd be delighted to do it. While together we stand and sing the selected song.